Our text tonight is 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 10 through 15, and we're going to be focusing on the formative nature of parenting as we continue in our series, Grace Principles for Parenting. In our last time in the study, we considered the importance of the Word of God in parenting from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Uh, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. We saw how the Word of God shapes our priorities in parenting. Uh, it shapes personal development in parenting and our walk with Christ as disciples. And then it shapes our discipline in parenting. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul sets the stage for what we can expect in the last days. And you say, well, what are the last days? From a broad perspective, it's the time frame from the time that Jesus ascended back into heaven in the church age and when he will return. But there will be an ultimate last days. And you say, when is that going to happen? Well, we are closer than we have ever been. And whether we are still in birth pangs or we are actually getting close to the delivery, we don't know. God only knows. That's not for us to be worried about, but instead to be aware of. And Paul is telling us what we can expect as we approach those last days. And in the opening verses of 2 Timothy 3, he tells us that hard times are going to come. People are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning. They're going to be disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. And he says very directly, avoid these people. After describing the false teachers who hold on to this form of religion but deny its power, uh, Paul exhorted Timothy to remain faithful even in the midst of persecution. And I want to pick up reading here in verse 10. Here's what the scripture says. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. When he opens here with, but you, or it might be translated uh, in your Bible as, but as for you, uh, A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, called this an emphatic contrast. Uh, Timothy was to strongly set himself against the course of what other people had taken in the world. So he's, he's given us this sharp division between the people who are going to deny God and they're going to do all these evil things and they're going to be people that are going to be false teachers and they're going to be proponents of all this stuff. And he says, but you, but as for you. And then he follows with, continue in what you have learned and firmly 
believed. So I think every passage of Scripture has a main idea. And I think this is the main idea of the whole section. In fact, I would say that everything in this section builds on the idea of continuing in what you have learned and firmly believed. The word continue is the same word that John used in 1 John 2 and verse 20. Therefore, uh, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. So the idea is to continue on in what you've been taught, what you've learned, what you've observed, what you've believed for yourself, and abide in that. And then he says, you know those who taught you. Now, what was he referring to specifically? Well, at least in part, he's referring to his relationship with Timothy because Paul uh, led him to Christ, gave him his ministry opportunity, taught him the word, laid his hands on him at ordination, and then guided him and mentored him in the midst of the ministry. And he says, Timothy, you have learned these things. Right now, you believe these things. He said, but now you've got to continue in what you believe. So he's making a very important point here. It's not enough just to start out believing it, or even in the moment to be holding on to it. But the evidence of whether or not we believed it to begin with, whether or not our faith was genuine to begin with, is do we continue in it? Do we persevere in what we have learned what we have believed, and what we now hold to. The formative nature of parenting is that we are providing our children with truth, uh, the body of knowledge, and then we are providing them examples of good character, and then we are providing them with examples of how to stand strong when it gets difficult in this life. So we're telling them what to believe. We're showing them that we actually believe it, And then we're giving them an example of how to stand strong in it when things don't go your way, when you're going through spiritual difficulties. And he makes an interesting statement here. He says, from infancy you have known. Timothy had the influence of his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now you probably know a little bit about this family, at least from your study of scripture. Eunice being a Jewish believer who had married a Greek man, which would explain the fact of why as an infant Timothy was not circumcised as all of the Jewish boys were. Uh, Paul had Timothy circumcised before they began their missionary journeys together, not because he saw it as being essential to his salvation, but instead he didn't want to uh, offend the Jewish audiences that they were going to be ministering among when the question came up, because evidently it was an important question. And uh, Lois was either Eunice's mother or something, mother-in-law, I think probably mother by way of the relationship in the scripture, but either way, the fact that she helped raise Timothy may mean that his father had died or they simply lived in a multi-generational family. That would not have been unusual. It's not unusual in our day necessarily uh, either. These women are examples of the powerful influence of a godly mother or grandmother and the influence that that godly mother or grandmother can have on a child's life. And what did Timothy do? 
he honored their impact. He honored their influence. And he eventually became the pastor of the church at Ephesus in his obedience to Christ. And uh, I was thinking about this very thing this, this weekend. I had gone with my uh, three kids, now grown, uh, on an outing. And the thought came to my mind, and I was thinking about the different things that they're doing and the things that they've been able to accomplish and some milestones that are coming up and some things that we're happy about and blessed with, with that. And as I was thinking about this particular passage, I had one thought. The greatest blessing that any parent or grandparent could experience is for their child or their grandchild to believe the faith themselves and continue in it and not walk away from it. It's the greatest blessing out of all of them. Any accomplishment is going to pale in comparison to that. The number one thing is if our children walk in the truth. And that's a great blessing. And as we talked about throughout this study, we can't guarantee it because people make their own decisions. We can do everything right. And sometimes our children will move in the wrong direction, and there are parents that do everything wrong, and their children move in the right direction. It's not always a perfect template. It's a messy, sinful world that we live in. Paul didn't assume anything. The only thing he assumed is it was important to tell Timothy to continue on. And it's the same thing with our children. Nothing can be assumed. We have to remember that each generation has to learn it for themselves They have to take hold of what they learn, and they have to live according to it. And there's only one area of wisdom that is eternally important, and that's the wisdom that leads to salvation. And Paul makes that pretty clear here. So let me give you some principles here for our uh, time together this evening on how to implement this spiritually formative parenting, how to shape your kids in a way that would honor the Lord and give them the best possible opportunity uh, to be faithful themselves. Number one, be a godly example to your children in teaching. Be a godly example to your children in teaching. Now, if you look at the organization of this particular passage, these verses fall into two sections. Marked out in the Greek text by two identical phrases in verse 10 and then in verse 14, that can be translated as, but you, or you, however. In verse 10, he draws the contrast between the character of evil men. And in verses 1 through 9, he does the same thing. And then he compares it to Timothy's faithfulness up to this point. So in verse 14, the contrast is between evil men and imposters. In verse 13, and Timothy's needed faithfulness in the future. And he opens in verse 10 by saying, but you followed my teaching. This is an important word here, this word teaching. It it means doctrine is what it means. Uh, Our faith is both taught as it relates to specific instruction, and it's caught as it relates to seeing somebody else around us live it out. You know, they say God has no grandchildren. God only has children. Uh, I think that's true. Because it means that it's not enough to be born into a believing home or into a believing church. Every individual has to choose for themselves that they're going to follow Christ. And I've shared this uh, periodically. I run into it very, very often in in West Virginia where 
people, if they learn that I'm a pastor or spiritual things come up and we're having a conversation, they'll deflect the conversation from themselves to tell me about their grandpa that was a preacher. So I had this very experience the other day. Uh, I had my vehicles being worked on, and I did something I wouldn't normally do in West Virginia. But everybody was out of the pocket, and I, I couldn't get anybody to take me at the moment, and I needed to go get my truck. So I called Uber. Can you imagine that? I called Uber in Cross Lanes, West Virginia. But anyway, I called Uber, and uh, Uber's really easy in cities. I've used it a lot, so I just got on my little app. But it wasn't like in the city. You know, they come like in three to five minutes in the city, and you, you see on your little app the cars are circling the the uh, block and, and you get several choices and then one of them locks in on you and they come up and they pick you up and it's almost immediate. Well, it's like a half hour later. So the guy's coming from the other side of Charleston, you know, and he's coming. And so he gets me in the vehicle and he starts talking to him and he says, yeah, he says, I, I retired a few years ago and I wasn't very good at being retired. And he starts telling me his whole life story. And he said, so I decided I was going to drive Uber. He said, so I just go pick people up when I feel like it. I pick up a little bit of pocket change. He said, otherwise I'm just at my kids and my grandkids activities. And he had picked me up down here at the corner near the office, and he says, uh, are you affiliated with Cross Lanes Baptist Church? And I said, well, yes, I am. And we started talking. Well, immediately, he starts telling me this long, complicated history about his grandfather, who had been a preacher, and how it, it, they had founded this particular holler somewhere uh, nearby, and he goes into this long thing. And when he gets to the end of his story, I'm just waiting for a break in the conversation. And I said, well, what about your faith? I said, are you involved in church anywhere right now? And I'm going to tell you, that car went ice cold. And the conversation was nearly over. We had some more conversation, but he wanted to tell me about his grandfather, who had been a preacher. But you could tell there was not much of anything going on in his heart spiritually. Just a reminder, God has no grandchildren. God has children. And Christianity will go on. But unless we intentionally pass on our faith to our children, it could easily be lost in our families. I see that even in my own extended family. And my maternal grandfather was a pastor, a bivocational pastor for decades and a rural mail carrier. Very serious about the gospel. Uh, wanted his family to carry it on. I mean, our family gatherings were centered around that. He would always talk about the Lord and what was important to him. And I'd like to tell you that my extended family and my first cousins and that big family that I've got, that all of them are walking with the Lord, but that's not even close to being true. And I just think about how fast it changed from one generation to the next, even though he made a good faith effort. So what's it going to be like if we don't make the effort? What's it going to be like if we don't lay the foundation? What's it going to be like if we don't give the example in our teaching? Uh, they surveyed some parents of children under the age of 13. And uh, nine out of the ten parents in the Barna Group survey believe that they have the primary responsibility for teaching their children about religious beliefs and spiritual issues. However, of these 1,010 adults that they uh, surveyed, um, the vast majority of them said they had no real plan or purpose for the spiritual development of their children. They knew it was important, and they answered affirmatively in the survey, yes, I understand it's important to spiritually form my children. But then when asked, do you have a plan, they didn't have a plan. And they had little or no training in how to nurture their children's faith. And they didn't have any accountability for that. So Paul reminded Timothy of his own example 
And it was an example that Timothy had witnessed for many years from his spiritual father. And he was saying, in essence, Timothy, my life is open to you. You know me. You know what I've taught. You've seen me persecuted and stoned and left for dead in your hometown of of Lystra. And you've seen me go through imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks. And he said, my life backs up my gospel message. And this doctrine, this teaching that Timothy's talking about, he's going to tell him later on in chapter 4 and verse 2 to preach the word. He put a premium on sound doctrine. What did he tell Titus? He said, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, why is this issue of teaching and sound doctrine so significant? Well, sound doctrine or teaching is important because our faith is based on a specific message. If you change the specific message and the faith shifts away from that specific message, then it shifts away from truth. And our eternal destiny depends on hearing the word of truth, on hearing the gospel of our salvation. And our responsibility is to deliver the message, not to dilute it. Our responsibility is to deliver the message and not distract from it. And you've got to understand that sound doctrine and teaching has to be contended for. It's not going to go easily. Just as Jude conveyed the urgency of the whole thing in Jude 1 and verse 3, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. You know what that word contend means? To strenuously fight for. It's kind of the language of a, of a dog fight. You've got to give it everything you've got. This, this is not neutral ground that you're dealing with here with your family. This is darkness that you've entered into. And sound doctrine is so important because what we believe determines how we live. And how we live and what we accept is directly correlated to the doctrine that we hold to. And what is the end of unsound doctrine? Timothy makes it, or Paul makes it clear, it's, it's destruction. That's the message of the New Testament. That if people buy into unsound doctrine, or they buy into things that are not true, destruction is going to be their end. So think about it this way. As physical parents, or even spiritual parents, we're all teaching something. Everybody's teaching something. But what are we teaching? What are we teaching by the words we use? What are we teaching by the beliefs that we hold to? Is our teaching wrapped up in wisdom? I like the way Proverbs chapter 4 puts it, beginning in verse 1. He says, listen, son to a father's discipline and pay attention so that you may gain understanding. Don't abandon wisdom and she will watch over you, verse 6. Love her and she will guard you, verse 7. Wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. And as you teach your children and your grandchildren, you're praying for their salvation, you're teaching them the gospel, and you're leading them in wisdom. Proverbs 22 and verse 28 says, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do you know we're living in an age when the ancient landmarks have been moved and in many cases removed? I mean, we're, we're in 
a fight. We are contending for what we believe, and it's so important that we contend for it in our families. In Deuteronomy 6, which we looked at uh, several sessions back, we learned that the goal and process of teaching our children is similar to the goal and process that God implemented with the people of, of Israel. Uh, God taught them that they were to hold to the one true living God. They were preparing to go into a pagan land, right? Uh, he wanted them to know that there's really only one God. There's only one way. There's only one path of wisdom. And that's what we're doing. We, we, we are teaching our children that there's, there's one way and that they're entering into a pagan land. And, and make this connection here. This is important. The future failure of Israel was a failure in teaching. They failed to pass on the knowledge of the Lord. And as a result of failing to pass on the knowledge of the Lord, they ended up in exile. And our kids will end up in spiritual exile if we fail to pass on the knowledge of the Lord. Now, they, make the, they may make their own decision and end up there on their own, but it ought not be because we didn't attempt to teach them the truth. And share with them the doctrine that's so important. And part of that is you're teaching your children to develop a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview that is uh, focused on the basic beliefs about the important things that will guide their actions. So what's wrapped up in a worldview? We talk about this from time to time, but let me just mention a couple things. Worldview asks the question, where did we come from? origins we say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth our children are taught in large part in this closed system that we live in in naturalism that the cosmos is all there is all there ever was and all there ever will be you see the dramatically different worldview from the outset on the number one question where do we come from that's going to have implications of where we end up. So if we can answer that, we were created in the image of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Second question we've got to ask is, if that's the case, what went wrong? Why do we see all this brokenness around us? As you think about the three circles, gospel presentation, brokenness is the answer because sin entered into the world. And with that, all sorts of brokenness ensued. So where did we come from? What went wrong? What's the answer to what went wrong? Well, the world would say more education, more money, more government, more whatever you fill the blank in. But our answer is Jesus Christ. What God has done for us in his only son to redeem us, to reconcile us to God. And then the last question is, where are we going? Well, if you get the first question wrong, or the second question wrong, or the third question wrong, you're going to inevitably end up with the wrong answer on the fourth one as well. But if you say we're created by God in his image, sin is what went wrong, Jesus Christ is the answer, the gospel is the answer, then the end result is where we're going, we're going to eternal life with God. But if you start with a different premise, you're going to end up with a different conclusion. And this is why worldview is very important. And that we teach our children not just what to think, but why they think what they think. Why do you believe what you believe? Let them process it. 
so that it makes sense for them as well. And you're wanting to train them with the tools they need to be sent into the world because biblical truth leads us out of darkness. Number two, be a godly example to your children in character. Look again here at verse 10. He says, but you followed, and then he gives a list here of what Timothy had followed. Conduct, purposes, faith, patience, love, and endurance. Now we need good examples, do we not? Uh, that's why the Bible gives us examples of faithful people. Now I know there's a lot of messed up people in there as well, or people that were messed up and then got redeemed. We see many that fall into sin. But there's a good number of examples in there of, of people who finish well. There's those Hebrews 11 examples of people who finish well even when it wasn't easy. And as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Character formation includes conduct. And our lives should provide for our children and our grandchildren good examples to follow. And often these examples that we follow are, are, and that we give are not always readily evident to us. So, for example, we would say, yes, it's important to believe the Bible. Yes, it's important to go to church. Uh, yes, it's important to live out your faith. But then does the rest of the week measure up to that? I'm not talking about perfect people. I'm just talking about like genuine people, transparent people that are, that are trying, that they're li- they want to live out their faith. How we spend our time, our money, and our energies says far more about us than even what we say. And I believe character includes your purpose. Paul was a man of purpose. His purpose was to carry out God's purpose. He did everything that he did for the glory of God. He related everything that he did to the importance of knowing Christ and making him known. Character includes faith. I think the word means faithfulness here, which is a fruit of the Spirit. So that gives you a little bit of leeway here that it's not about you. It's about what God does through you. Character includes patience, according to Paul. Um, it, it really, uh, patience here is actually two words that literally mean to be long before passion or long before anger. So in other words, the patient person does not have a short fuse. The patient person can deal with and bear with difficult people without snapping. That's the vision that we get here. And then character includes love. Love should mark believers in Jesus. Uh, Somebody gave a definition of biblical love as self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of others. Seeking out the highest good of others, the highest good of your loved one. And then character, according to Paul, includes perseverance. This idea, uh, the word has the idea of enduring difficult circumstances over the long haul and trusting God when things aren't the way you want them to be. So let's summarize this in, in what I think he's communicating. You remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That's what he's encouraging. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And if you're familiar with this particular word, it refers to one who mimics another. It's the same as a mime. 
Um, it's an active noun that brings out this concept of an active responsibility. And in the New Testament, it involves the process of, of reproduction. So the Lord Jesus was seeking to reproduce himself in us, in a sense, uh, with us as his disciples. So a mature believer is one who's a good example to follow, who influences other people in a positive way. And uh, motion does not necessarily mean direction. Activity in itself is not necessarily effectiveness. So that means that whatever your motion is, whatever your activity is in your family, needs to have some type of framework, some type of purpose to it, even if it's not formally organized in that. And if we're following Jesus, we should not hesitate to tell our children to imitate our walk with the Lord. So here's the question. In the way you live your life, do you, would you have confidence or do you have confidence in being able to say to your children, imitate me as I imitate Christ? You say, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul. I don't care. This is not for the super spiritual. This is like for ordinary everyday Christians. It's like people are just trying to get along and get by and, and deal with the difficulties of life, but they want people to know and to follow Jesus. And we have no choice in being an example. Everybody is an example. The issue is, what kind of an example will we be? Do you know where you're going? You've got to know where you're going if you're going to lead and influence your family. Paul wrote to the Thessalonica church in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6. And he said, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord when you received the message with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit despite great affliction. Number three, be a godly example to your children in difficulties. Be a godly example to your children in difficulties if you want to shape them and form them spiritually. We go now to verses 11 and verse 12 here in our main passage. Perseverance that uh, he references means to endure difficult circumstances over the long haul. How do we respond when difficulties come? What example do we give to our family when things don't go our way? Do we drift away from God in disappointment? Or do we draw near to God in hope? A godly example draws near to God and grows in spite of the circumstances of life. And listen to this. Perhaps because of the circumstances of life, we draw near to God and we grow. I know that I've found in my own life, a lot of times the most difficult things I've had to deal with have been what have propelled me most spiritually. I'm probably my own worst enemy when things are going the best because I get complacent. I get spiritually lazy at times. But when things aren't going very well or I'm dealing with a particular difficulty, that's when I really lean into the whole thing and that's when God does some of his best work in refining my life. And I, I would guess that it's the same with you. And Paul mentions the trials that he encountered at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which was Timothy's city. Uh, these were three cities in the Galatian region in Asia Minor. And during the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Antioch because of intense persecution. You can read about it in Acts chapter 13. 
In Iconium, they had to flee to avoid being stoned. You can read about it in Acts chapter 14. And then in Lystra, Paul was actually stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead until God raised him up and he rescued him. And you can also find that in Acts chapter 14. Now here's the turning point. Don't miss this. What did Paul do when those things happened to him? He kept on preaching. He kept on serving. He kept on being faithful. You know who saw that? Timothy saw it. Timothy witnessed the example of courage and joy. He saw Paul digging in. And God does not always keep us from trials, but God always keeps us through trials. That might range from ridicule or rejection or physical violence or even death. But God never, even for a moment, ever abandons those he loves. And every true believer who lives a godly life in this world will experience persecution. We're seeing some examples today of what real persecution looks like. China is one of the most difficult and obvious examples in the world. In recent years, the government uh, has clamped down on free churches and forcibly closed hundreds of churches and arrested and detained hundreds of pastors and church members, and they've attempted to block Bible sales where they can. Uh, church leaders are uh, pressured with intense pressure to join the state-sanctioned Protestant church organization, and on and on I could go. Intense persecution. In our own country, we've seen the increasing marginalization of our faith and a move toward freedom from religion rather than freedom of religion. And yet all of it's to be expected according to the scripture. But you know what? None of that's going to stop the church of the living Christ. And I don't know what the true numbers are. Only heaven will know. But there's somewhere between 100 and 120 million born-again people in China, most likely. Maybe more. Can you imagine what God can do through 100 or 120 million born-again people? You think he's not going to finish his work? Of course he is. John Calvin said, They who wish to be exempt from persecutions must necessarily renounce Christ. you got to expect it if you follow the Lord. There's a story from uh, the Bible that you're familiar with in the third year of King Jehoiakim in 605 B.C., the Babylonian army rumbled like a juggernaut across Israel. They destroyed Jerusalem. They laid siege to the land. And Daniel and uh, some of his people were captured and led away into captivity in Babylon. Daniel was exposed in that wave of deportation to alien ways and ungodly ways. But you remember he didn't embrace them. He remained true to the God of Israel in his heart. And he rose in prominence in Babylon in the purpose that God had for him. And then one of the most powerful portions of that scripture in chapter 3 of Daniel, uh, we're introduced to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They held strongly to their belief in God, even though they were threatened with a fiery furnace. 
It's a favorite children's story, but it's one that's very powerful for us because they had been taken away into captivity with Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar ordered worship of a golden image that was an image of his power and his glory. It was a giant statue. They were supposed to bow down to it and to worship it. And they worshiped God only. And as a result of it, they were thrown into that fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar could not believe what he saw. And Daniel 3 and verse 25 says, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. Who was the fourth in the fire? I believe it was a pre-incarnate presence of Jesus Christ. It was definitely a theophany. Whatever the detail of that was, it was the presence of God in their midst. And I think with the reference to the Son of God or like a Son of God, I think likely that's what it was. So what does that teach us? God's with us through the fire. That's not just a southern gospel song. It's like a truth. It's a fact that God is with us. And you know what else transfers with that? God will be with your children and grandchildren through the fire if they will trust in him. That's what we're working toward here. That's, that's what our whole purpose is. And who we are and what we believe in the core of our being is revealed under pressure. And you know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open. And when your faith life is forced into the open, you show your true colors. You reveal who you really are. And Romans 8, 28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, verse 29, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In verse 30, And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Somebody's called that the, those verses the the golden chain of redemption telling us what our God has done on our behalf. I close with this illustration on a wall near the main entrance of the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, is a portrait with the following inscription. James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family so that people would know the appearance of a man who died for freedom. No literal portrait of Jesus exists. There's not one. Not even that pretty 1950s WMU version that is in some old country churches. That's, you know that's just what somebody had in their mind. That was in their head of what they thought he was going to look like. It doesn't exist. However, the likeness of the Son is seen in his followers. And what we want to happen in our families is for the likeness of Jesus Christ to be seen in our families because they're imitating us as we imitate Christ. So I say this to you in closing, the goal of formative parenting is to shape our children so that they will be conformed to the image of Jesus. The goal of formative parenting is to shape our children so that they will be conformed to the image of Jesus. 
And I submit to you that this too is the goal of Christian discipleship. This verse in Romans 8, 29 shapes how I think about Christian discipleship and how the church ought to think about Christian discipleship. Because this is God's goal for us, that we be conformed to the image of his son. That's the progress you're desiring. That's the fruit that you're expecting. That's the outcome that you're hoping for. Conformed to the image of his son. And may it be so in our homes and our families. Because of the example that we've given. Because of the truth that we've taught. Because of the difficulty that we've endured. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can have an example to follow and understand what it means to be like Christ. We are imperfect examples. We uh, fail at many points. And we need your grace daily. We need your grace just as much today as we did when we got saved. And we thank you that you give us that grace super abundantly, overflowing, more than we could ever need if we'll make the most of it. Lord, you'll use us for your glory. I pray for the families that are represented here in the room. And uh, we have varied uh, experiences and varied circumstances in our homes and among our children and among our grandchildren. And there's some that are really encouraged tonight when they hear this message because they, they see the fruit of it and they see how you've, you've uh, been faithful and how uh, their children and grandchildren have been faithful and they've got good examples to point to. And then I know there are others that are perhaps discouraged when they hear a message like this. I pray that wouldn't be the case, Lord, because we're not ultimately in charge of the outcome. We're only called to be faithful in the process. So help us to be faithful in the process and help us to believe for a good outcome. And God, in the midst of all of it, that we would be conformed to the image of your son and that he'd get the glory for any good that comes from our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.